I am like a black supremacist. Okay. <laughs> like I think we're better and I don't know why black people as a whole are so humble and so modest. What's good? I'm Nikisha Elise Williams, and this is Black and Published, bringing you the journeys of writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. We're back for season three, y'all. And kicking off the premiere is conceptual artist Natasha Marin, the cultural curator of the anthology series Black Powerful. It's a collection of 100 diasporic people answering four questions. A project Natasha says started with her talking to some really dope people who only had to fulfill one requirement. I wanted people who self-identify as having a sexy voice to come on down to the recording studio where I had like a bottle of brown liquor and some little snacks and we would shoot the shit like black people do. Quiet storm voices. Exactly. Quiet Storm Voices, like, that's how this started. Then the book came as a, a later project. The book Black Powerful is the seventh installment in Natasha's Black Imagination series, which boasts five visual art exhibitions, as well as the first published anthology, 2020's Black Imagination. As an artist, Natasha says her medium is people. She explains why even though she got an MFA, she didn't think she had gone through enough trauma to really call herself a writer. Plus, the one subject she tackled with her writing that led to doxing and death threats. And what it means to believe in Black supremacy. That and more when Black and Published continues. All right, so Natasha, first question. When did you know that you were a writer? Um, it's something I've run away from, if I'm going to be completely honest with you. Um, I went to graduate school for writing. I went ahead and spent $120,000 to become a writer (laughs) or whatever. Um, but then I noticed that it, it feels like a gang you have to be jumped into. Like to be a writer, you have to have something to write about. And sometimes that means you have to have like survived some trauma of some kind. So I was like, ooh, that looks heavy. Let me go hang out with these artists real quick. And sort of bibbity bopped over to the the arts. But last year, my 20 year marriage came to an end in a very dramatic fashion. And I think now I have been jumped into the gang and being a writer. So I'm like a brand new, like claiming to be a writer, writer, if that makes sense. Wow. I'd never considered writing something where you had to be jumped into the gang because of your past trauma. But yeah. I can can I can yeah. see mm-hmm, I can yeah. see how people on the outside or wanting to come into the industry can see that. So then when you bopped over to working with visual arts and art installations, um, did you not consider literature still art? Yeah, of course, of course. But it's just like, there's something really solitary about writing. And I'm a very collaborative creator. My work depends on other people too. Um, When people ask me, you know, 
what do you mean when you say you're a conceptual artist? I say that my medium is people. Mm. People are my medium. And that looks like a lot of different things for, you know, these books. Obviously, the art is taking the form of a book, but I, I think of it as still the kind of work that I do in community all over the world. It's, it's all kind of on one continuum. So with all of it being on a continuum and your work being people and you translating that to the written word, it began with Black imagination, yes? I mean, I've, I've written before. I think I was that kind of kid who would read a lot and write a lot, mostly because I had like that academic parent. You know, if you've got a teacher mom or a teacher dad, you're going to get a lot more time with the books than you're going to get with the television. Um, so I remember I was like in second grade when I had a ninth grade reading level and I just had read all the things and, you know, started writing stories really young. I think I liked to write science fiction at first, um, but I didn't start publishing till 1997, you know, and like literary magazines and stuff like that. Most of the work starts sort of like on the page, but like I was saying, it's, it's very isolating. Writing is very isolating. It's something that for the most part you do by yourself. Um, and I prefer to work with other people. So in creating a collaborative piece of literature, what was your intention behind the kind of writing that you wanted to put together and be in conversation with one another? For these books, Black Imagination and Black Powerful, I really wanted it to feel like a portable community because I live in Seattle and, you know, God bless you if you understand what it is to be Black and live in Seattle, but it's like, dear diary, I saw another Black person today. You know what I mean? We smiled at each other. It felt good, you know? Um, it's not a place where you are ever spoiled by the amount of melanin around, you know? Um, it's like we're given a little handful of the precious and we have to make that last. So I knew that for me, my own experience of isolation in the Pacific Northwest, that I wanted other folks to feel like they could like pick up Black imagination or Black powerful and feel like they had a whole community of like living, breathing Black people with us as individuals. So that was kind of my, my vision going into the project. Um, I'm kind of doing like a Zora Neale Hurston kind of ethnography thing where I ask people questions and I listen to their answers and I try to capture the, the spirit of their dialect and their accent and their actual voice. Because um, the first instinct, like my original editor had was to sort of standardize all the English, um, but that kind of flattens the personalities and it's kind of upholding white supremacy in a way that I just, I just don't need to do that work. So yeah, it was really important for me to sort of take care of our voices and have some fidelity to how we actually speak to each other and communicate. So many of the um, submissions, because anybody, literally any person who is Black can submit to these book projects that I do of any age. Uh, so I've, you know, there have been children, there have been elders and everybody in between in these books. Uh, what I asked people for the first book was, um, what is your origin story? Mm. How do you heal yourself and describe or imagine a world where you're loved, safe and valued? 
And so that last question, describe or imagine a world where you're loved, safe, and valued, is also in the second book, because it's a question that I keep, I'm not finished asking this question yet. <laughs> I'm still asking this question in my own life as well. Yes, we're going to get to those questions. Uh, as for the where do you feel most loved, safe, and valued, yeah. when I first read the question before I started reading the answers, I was like, I don't think that place exists. And then as I started reading other people's answers, I didn't see that they thought that it exists much either. Some did, but not many did. So when it comes to thinking of those questions and bringing that type of writing together, you mentioned not wanting to flatten the voices by standardizing the language. So then, and that it's open to all different sorts of writers. When you received the submissions, what was your first reaction? to the answers that people had submitted in writing. I put the collection together on a vacation in Mexico, um, very close to the deadline. Like, you know, <laughs> the publisher is like, mm, we're going to need the final version on, let's say, day 10. I was all up in day six, seven, and eight putting this together. Um, but I remember crying. I remember crying several times when the submissions come in, they come in in different file types. So when human beings who identify as black every day, not just for special occasions, submit responses to these questions that I've proposed, they do not have to be writers. They do not have to identify as writers. All you need to qualify is, are you black every day, every day? And that that's enough. So a lot of these responses I'm hearing as audio, like I'm hearing people's voices. And then I am then having a transcriptionist or I'm transcribing word by word their actual responses. I remember my my first sort of sitting down to really reflect on like how people were responding, um, being a very emotional experience, you know, really I think I'm I'm struck by how people trust me, you know, to respond to these questions. Like you said, the the prompt scribe or imagine a world where you're loved, safe, and valued. It seems like an easy prompt. Like it seems like something you can just get right into. But the more you think about it, the more challenging it becomes to answer that. And it's it's really the question that at least for the first book, demands our imagination. Like imagination is a prerequisite for, for answering a question like that. Because it certainly doesn't feel like this world that we live in right now. And so this series of books began with Black Imagination in 2020. When did you decide that you wanted to focus in on these questions that you ask in these two books as well as that you wanted to then not only focus on those questions, but then have the answers published in these anthologies that you've curated? I never made that decision. <laughs> um, it just happened. But no, I was minding my black ass business and just posting really oversharing, which is kind of my brand on Facebook. And McSweeney's came to me mm. and was like, we have been following you on the interwebs and you, you talk mad shit and we'd like to publish one of your books. Um, they originally wanted to do a book on my 
viral reparations project of 2016, where I I got um, white identified people to leverage their privilege to support people of color mm. in you know finding houses and jobs and you know just connecting with resources. But I had received plenty of death threats and hatred from that project, so I was I was spiritually done with it by the time they they offered that. But I said, hey, I'm right now I'm collecting responses to these questions. I'm really focused on listening to Black people and centering us and our stories. Is that something that you all would be interested in? They were. Your story of McSweeney's coming to you after your first project where you got all the death threats. I was reading that because you have it in your bio and then you have it on your website. And I was like, wait, what? Like, why are you getting death threats? Like, I why, don't why understand. Why was I getting death threats? And every now and then another, like a death threat will like squeeze through. And um, from that project, I honestly think at the time, and I still think now that the word reparations triggers white supremacists like i think it's a trigger Mm -hmm. just the word itself so in my supreme naivete i decided to call this project reparations now i'm thinking present day reparations not like reparations for slavery because i'm pretty sure your used cell phone isn't going to fix slavery do you know what i mean I don't think your unused American Eagle Outfitters gift card is going to make up for the 400 plus years of enslavement of Black diasporic people. But, you know, that's where people went immediately. For me, I was talking about present day, like contemporary repair that is needed for inequalities that we're experiencing right now today. Uh, As far as I know, There's nobody in the fields of cotton or cane um, not being paid for their labor in our country. But, you know, we do have the prison industrial complex. We still have inequality. So that was what that project was about. But yeah, no, people will send you death threats for anything these days. Um, The scariest part was when the white supremacist gun bloggers doxed me. So they like took my current address and you know this was 2016 so my kids were that much younger then um and put my address uh, where angry white racists with guns could find it wow so did you even feel safe to try to publish anything else after that experience with reparations well yeah i mean mcsweeney's is like in the publishing world there are these sort of boutique publishers and McSweeney's is known for having just sexy books. They're also known for being pretty damn white. If I'm going to be honest, like, you know, when, when you pronounce white with the white, white, white. (laughs) yeah, it's that, it's that level of whiteness, but their books are sexy. Like when you see black imagination, it's not like everybody else's first book. Like, it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's gorgeous. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's the kind of book that looks good in your house, even if you don't read, you know, if you just have it as like a, an accoutrement, you know, just so you look like a person who reads. It's like a, an accessory as well. And then the, the content, I think, is pretty decent as well. Um, 
but yeah, so that's why I was, I was thrilled when McSweeney's approached me. I was like, I'm about to be the blackest thing that's ever happened to McSweeney's. Like, do understand that, but, but yeah, let's do this. They've been awesome. And so in living up to that promise of being the blackest thing that had ever happened to McSweeney's, what was that process like in working with them, the editors, and doing these two volumes so far uh, in producing Black Powerful and Black Imagination? Well, I had never published traditionally before. I have, um, it's very ironic that like you are at this exact stage of development with little baby person because my first book is actually called Milk mm. and it's about breastfeeding. Which I'm about to do right now. Um, yes, exactly. And I needed it to be able to be accessible with one hand as a breastfeeding mom myself. So it's a an ebook. So you can like read it with one finger while breastfeeding, right? That came out through Minor Arcana Press, but because it's like a super teeny sort of mom and pop press and it went straight to ebook, like there were never any printed copies or anything. I didn't have the like book publishing experience. And in some ways I still have it because McSweeney's is, is a boutique publisher. Like I have friends who have published through like major publishers and their experiences are very different than mine. But I will tell you, I have a black editor and I have a black publicist and everybody sort of working on the project is black. The cover art is by one of the best black artists I know, Vanessa German. She's so badass. Everyone should follow her on Instagram. She's the gift that keeps giving. Um, so yeah, I think I think it is actually kind of the blackest thing that's happened to McSweeney's. And then when you know, David Diggs and Lena Waithe did the audiobook for Black Imagination. Like that definitely brought some street cred <laughs> along with it. So, yes. That's nice. All right. So, we've talked about Black Imagination, which is already out, but we're here to talk about Black Powerful. So, let's get into Black Powerful. If you want to read your introduction or anything from it, because I have all the questions and the lines and then so much. <laughs> yes, um, let's get into it. All right, Black and Published family, it's time for the reading. While Black Powerful is a collection of thoughts and musings from 100 diasporic Black people, it's also a text whose connective tissue is the limitlessness of the Black experience, be it joyful or painful, longing or searching, abundant or afraid. It is grounded in humanity and the business of being, feeling, seeing, and talking Black. Here's Natasha. So I was really honored to have Jason Reynolds write the foreword. And I will just read the introduction. I think that's probably the best thing to do for those who are curious. Um, okay. Once upon a Black imagination, there was a whole city where our men could just cry. Men, trans men, our men from everywhere could come to cry, surrounded by beauty, good food, fresh air, sunshine, and the love of their brothers. Years of blinking back what has been long earned come to a sighing end, and the era of uncried and overdue tears can at last begin. We men cry first for ourselves, for all the years we didn't, 
Then we cry for everything else. We hold ourselves and rock and sway and sob. The air hums with sighs and shaking shoulders. Nearby, the city of tears is the city of laughter. In this city, women, trans women are women, come from the fringes of their most unreleased selves to laugh and cackle and kick and thigh slap away the hours with their sisters. They begin with themselves, laughing in screams and peals and snorts and end with the absurdity of those who have struggled to keep this liberation from them. They laugh with radical rebellion, long and loud, hearty with relief. Those arriving at this city are smiling on the way in. Sisterhood seems safer when we are laughing together as though we are alone. And forever the city of tears and the city of laughter would exist like sustainable healing communities. And we would laugh and we would cry and no one but us would be watching. In this collection, I have gathered over 100 Black diasporic voices to respond to the following prompts. When do you feel most rooted or indigenous? When do you feel most powerful? What does it sound like when you claim yourself? And describe or imagine a world where you are loved, safe, and valued. When I began this work in 2019, I didn't realize that my life would change so radically. I didn't realize that I would have to become my most powerful self to bring this collection of Black voices to fruition. With the COVID-19 pandemic, everything was in turmoil. From a place proximate to not existing, I allowed the power of these voices, the voices of my community in this world and beyond, to prop me up when I couldn't do it on my own. Our imagination gives way to our truest power, and I'm now imagining and manifesting a better world for me and my children. I value creativity, boldness, honesty, open communication, connection, and enduring friendship. I escape to my own imagination and find abundant joy. All right. So you mentioned that the book opens with a foreword by Jason Reynolds. And in this foreword, he tells the story of his mother watching Family Feud and getting some of the answers wrong and always rooting for the Black family, which is wholly familiar because I do the same thing. And so in his foreword, he writes, you know, about his mother. She is connected to Black experience that can't be whittled into six responses. And like any Black expanse, there is limitlessness. So my first question for you about the collection is, do you think that this literary expression of Black Powerful that you've created is that limitlessness on the page? I think so. How do I put this? I am a fire sign um, and it is hard for me to stay focused. And I have been focused on this project for so many years in a row. And it's because it's still new. Hmm. It continues to be new. I can ask this question, describe or imagine a world where you're loved, safe, and valued. And I can ask it all over the world. I can ask it in different languages and I'm still getting new answers. And I do think that the process of just seeing ourselves as resources is radical enough right now. I think Black folks all over the world, we need to start regarding ourselves as living treasures Hmm. um, because we are. We are. And there is limitlessness to our experience. You know, Blackness is everything. Blackness is all the things. 
that have ever been and that will ever be. And there are certainly Black people in the future. Yeah. I always remember from art class where they talk about Black and white and that Blackness is the presence of all colors and then whiteness is the absence of all colors and how that's really talked about. But how did you settle on the four questions for this one and the one that's also been reprised from the first version? Um, so like I said, when I'm doing stuff, it's like collaborative. So you have to imagine that I did not have a book deal. I was just doing this. This is just what I was doing. I just happened to be talking to Black people and asking these kind of questions. Like that's how this started. Then the book came as a, a later project. So before Black Powerful, I was actually having people meet me at a recording studio, Jack Straw Recording Studio. And the Facebook event was like, uh, sexy black voices. And I wanted people who, who self-identify as having a sexy voice to come on down to the recording studio, um, where I had like a bottle of brown liquor and some little snacks and we would shoot the shit like black people do. Um, which was su super fun with, you know, people with sexy voices that just, you know, radio quality sound, delicious blackness, um, quiet storm voices. Yeah, exactly quiet storm voices so you have to imagine like several very enjoyable hangouts with like tables surrounded by black folks um you know definitely talking over each other at points and it came together organically as community in black powerful i really wanted to make sure that there were young people's voices you know if if a person submitted and in, in their identifying information they indicated that they were trans or non-binary that like move them to the top of the pile. I pulled the peripheral people in first, the people we don't hear from all the time. So young folks, trans, single black moms to the front kind of thing. Like who needs elevation? Who needs amplification? Um, because in our own communities, we have plenty of issues about who we see and validate as black and as complete. So I wanted us all to be in this together and not sort of dominated by a sort of cis, het black male voices who tend to take up a lot of space but you know everybody's in there i think my favorite response is from page 52 and it's the writer maria hamilton abigunde who says mm -hmm. africa is alive in bahia nobody's trying to hide it about where she found that africa was alive and so many people in talking about where they found themselves to be most rooted or indigenous talked about either Africa or the Caribbean, mm -hmm. but a lot of people pointed to in the United States in New Orleans. Why do you think so many people pointed to that American city as being the place of being of where they felt rooted and indigenous, even if they had no family lines there or any connection to it other than just enjoying the feel and the, the pace of the city? I've only been to New Orleans one time, but I know many people who consider New Orleans to be home. And to me, it always feels a little Caribbean. Like I, I am Caribbean, but it has like, um, there's nuances. New Orleans has nuances. And I think sometimes the racial landscape in America is not nuanced enough. It's not really profound. It's not super deep. It's like, if you're white, you're having an experience. And if you're not white, you're having a different version of that experience. And I think in New Orleans, there's a vibe of like, 
people that you wouldn't necessarily expect, like in terms of their phenotype, what they're looking like are like down, you know? So you're going to find your down ass Asians. You're going to find your down ass Latin Latinx folks. You're going to like, people are more mixed in general. And I think because there's been more exposure, there is more acceptance and like the lines are a little bit more blurry. Um, it's weird to have to sort of answer like, why is New Orleans so dope? But like, it just is like, it is. And I think it's because it's unapologetically black and it's been unapologetically black for some time. In the section on when do you feel most powerful? Um, there's a line from Jonah Davis McElliot, when I'm able to carve out space with language, that is my power. What do you think is the power of language and in this in this work and the curation that you've been doing and the iteration of black imagination? And because it's a power that several people reference, be it the words that they say on behalf of themselves, the words they say on behalf of someone else, or even their own literary art. What is the power of language? I love language. I I probably, if I had it to do over again and I was just going to waste $120,000 on Navian, aka Sally Mae, aka Gangsterlicious, um, <laughs> just, just being indebted in the United States, I probably would have gone back and done linguistics because mm -hmm. I am just such a big nerd when it comes to language and the science of communication. You know, they know now that the words we use uh, have very little to do with our actual communication. So much more is about tonality, facial expression, body language. Like that's how we're actually communicating. The words we choose are like, you know, down on the list in terms of um, how we prioritize. But, you know, I, maybe this is me coming out. I am like a black supremacist, okay? <laughs> Like, I think we're better. Um, Terry Crews warned us about you. <laughs> I think we're better. And I don't know why Black people as a whole are so humble and so modest. Um, the sun, you know, that thing that all the plants go around, um, it likes us best. It, <laughs> it, it chose us. We're literally the chosen people by that big pulsing ball of sun in the sky. Um, and people who identify as white are basically genetic mutants. And there's nothing wrong with the mutants. We all love the X-Men. But I'm just saying like, when it comes to like superiority, like if somebody's gonna claim to be superior, it would be us, you know? I, I, I feel like I'm gonna start getting death threats now, <laughs> but I'm gonna possible. let you talk your shit though. It's possible. It's possible. But like, are we scared about it? We're talking about language. And I'm just saying Black people are the best. And I mean, like, in terms of all the languages, you know, music is a language. Um, science is a language. Um, languages are languages. And we have all of them. We have all of them. And also, nobody needs to feel any kind of way about Black people perhaps believing that we were the best very quietly to ourselves, by the way, um, because all the people are black people. Like there are no people on planet earth who are not actually black people. There are black, black people, there are brown, black people, and then there are pale black people because all the melanin is the same color. 
there's nobody out there with like a different color melanin. Like all the melanin is the same. Those cells are the same color. They activate and they make black, black people. They make brown, black people. And they make pale black people who have not been black for too long. I think it's useful for people to sort of really bring critical thinking skills to the idea of superiority. Mm. Um, Once upon a time, I made a video um, for this viral company. Uh, They make viral video content called Cut. And the video was asking 100 Black people, much like Black Powerful, okay, to respond to different prompts. And one of the prompts was, what exactly are white people superior at? This video has been banned. It's been banned from YouTube. It's been banned from YouTube. Now, we know the internet is a racist place, okay? Um, But yes, once again, I was called the most racist person on the whole internet. But you know what's interesting? The 250 plus response videos to the original video are still out there. And they're just angry, butthurt people of all colors who cannot believe the audacity to even question what exactly is superior about whiteness. Because other than like raping, killing, murdering, colonization, dividing, conquering, not washing your legs or your chicken, smelling like a wet dog, I don't know what it is. But every day people wake up all over the world and they're just convinced that they're the best. Meanwhile, controversial for pointing out that the sun likes us best but it does it does though i'm gonna let that stand in its entirety no interrogation because i don't even know where to begin um coming from that viewpoint of black supremacy what do you want i'm joking by the way not like (laughs) actually a black supremacist i want people to think about black supremacy as a thing because we have to, we're inundated with white supremacy, you know, but I, I think blackness is more sophisticated. It's more like New Orleans. It's more nuanced. We're just not like sort of Neanderthals in yes. our approach to thinking. So I am being playful. But again, if it's lost on like, if, if stupid people don't understand satire, that's okay. I'm an artist, okay? <laughs> what I do is I talk to black people. So, you know, no one should be too pressed about anything that I'm doing um, or saying or thinking. But I do think all of us can afford to challenge ourselves and stretch our minds. And for, for Black folks, we really need to uproot our own like internalized depression. You know, There's nothing to me sadder than seeing a Black person sort of like caping for a white person who would not piss on them if they were on fire, you know? From that standpoint and what you just said about, you know, you being an artist and being playful when you say black supremacy, the role of the artist is to disrupt, is to interrogate, is to challenge, is to subvert. So in doing all of that with this later latest iteration of your Black Imagination series, what do you want readers to get out of this collection? Well, I don't care if white people get anything out of it. I am really genuinely focused on black people. And um, I think that there are, you know, there are good people on both sides. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't. I sure did. Oh my gosh, you didn't. I think there are good, listen, I think there are good people on both sides. Um, And uh, 
the people who continue to this day to identify as white, which already to me betrays a lack of critical thinking skills. But let's say it's it's all the way on today and you still identify as white. Let's say you're curious, you know, about experiences that are not yours, that do not dominate the mainstream. One of the best ways to learn anything is to sit down and shut up. And the beauty of reading is that you cannot actually do anything but sit down and shut up. So you can sit down, shut up, and let Black people talk, which is what happens in Black powerful and Black imagination. And you can learn from that, you know? So I think that there is something there for everybody, but I'm not here for everybody. I'm here for Black people. I'm here for us taking time to listen to ourselves Mm -hmm. and each other and really reflect on things like our indigeneity. But in the United States, we are sort of Hollywood has force fed us this idea of like the Plains Indian phenotype being like what indigeneity looks like. But as, as in my experience, black people, like people you can see and recognize as black are the only people you can actually see our indigeneity. You know where all of us came from originally. You can see that, you know, so there's no way we aren't multiply, sort of multivalently indigenous at all times. So I want to switch to a speed round and a game before I let you go for the afternoon. But I'm going to, after I ask you the superlatives of the speed round, I'm going to ask you your own questions. So first, what is your favorite book? My favorite book is anything by N.K. Jemisin. Nora, if you hear this. I will carry your purse, babe. Like, I hope you're writing right now. Um, <laughs> heard you got that genius award. So we don't know whether or not you're going to finish that trilogy because you ain't got to do shit for nobody but yourself right now. But girl, N.K. Jemison, I have read all of your huge, thick, big size books at least twice, every single one of them. I love N.K. Jemison. So anything, the Stone Earth trilogy was probably my favorite out of all of them. But you know, her latest on the city we became fire. So that answers the first two questions about your favorite book and your favorite author. Who is your favorite artist? Mm. I think Sonelli Muholi is pretty cool. Um, I've, I've met them and spent a little time with them and I love their work. I would also say Vanessa German, Vanessa German, who's a beautiful person, uh, whose work is also just absolutely stunning and important. Zanelle Muholi's exhibit, Sonoyoma and Gonyoma, uh, Hail the Dark Lioness, was exhibiting where I live last year at our art museum, and I ended up writing about it. And so, because it was the blackest thing I have ever seen. Right. <laughs> like, just visually, but also in the museum where where it was um, exhibited, it was like the blackest thing that had like ever been there, ever. So, love that exhibit. And so now I'm going to ask you your own questions. Where do you feel the most rooted and indigenous? Anytime I give myself the space to really kind of like make love to a chicken bone <laughs> and just like feel my teeth scraping away at like the gristle and the cartilage and like practically suck the marrow out of it. I feel hella rooted and indigenous just feels like like my ancestors have my back. I would also say when I'm on the continent in the water, when I'm in the Caribbean in the water and I'm dancing, 
with the waves. Like I'm just moving my body the way the waves move my body. I feel like there is no space between me and the water element and the earth element. And I feel like very rooted. Where do you feel the most powerful? I feel most powerful when I am joyful. There is really no better feeling than being in your joy because you have the bandwidth to be generous. A joyful person is usually a well-fed, well-hydrated, well-fucked person. And they can offer to help you with your car. They can stop by to help you move. They can lend you $20. You know, they can listen to you for three hours on the phone because they have energy to spare. What does it sound like when you name or claim yourself? <laughs> um, you know, I'm working on that. I am I'm learning Spanish right now. And I think uh, eventually when I claim myself, I'll be able to do so in multiple languages. But for right now, I am Natasha Marin, and I am mother to Roman and Sagan, and I am daughter to Patricia and David, and I come from eight generations of people who were triracial and identified as Black. Um, I am fortunate to know where I come from up to a certain point in the story, and I take a lot of strength from knowing that, you know, the twin islands that I come from had names and languages and songs and traditions before Columbus rolled up um, to name them Trinity and Tobacco. And finally, describe or imagine a world where you are loved, safe, and valued. You know what is crazy about this question? I think I might have gotten a glimpse at that world hmm. last week, actually. Um, I left the United States, I met some people, and I think, I think Black people need to get out of America. I think we need to, um, you know that saying about getting up from the table when you're not being served? Mm-hmm. I think we need to get up. I think we need to expatriate i think we need to go where people want us where people are happy to see us you know we've given a lot of our labor and our love to this country maybe it's time to be a little self-interested a little self-centered and invest in ourselves a little bit let's start our own communities you know let's start our own communities in different countries and let's go back to our multilingual multicultural selves. All right. So now switching to my game, it's called Rewriting the Classics. What's the one book you wished you would have written? Hmm. I don't know that there's a book I wish I would have written that like someone else wrote. There's books that I wish I could write that I need to write. Do you know what I mean? Like I wish I could write my own books. But you know, in general, I think that a lot of the classics are overrated. So like anytime you have like um, a, a white man in a life of luxury, waxing poetic about nature, you know, whether it's like Thoreau or what, like we can skip all that. <laughs> we can, we can skip 
that whole literary moment. That answers so, the yeah. question in this game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to skip to the final question for our interview today. Given all that you have done in the art world, in the curation world, in the literary world, and all that you're still doing, I know you have the exhibit Motherland that's up right now. What do you want someone to write about you and the legacy that you've left behind when you are no longer here and among the ancestors? I love that question. You know, I want I want folks to tell the truth. Like, I am not a perfect person at all, um, but I love to learn. And when I'm learning, I feel like I'm remembering something that I always knew, which makes it sort of a spiritual um, experience. I love connecting with people and I put energy into doing that. I'm um, the hardest work I've ever done in my life is mothering. Mm. And, you know, the people who I care most about their evaluation of me are my children. So I would hope that people would tell the truth and they would be like, hey, look, she loved to learn. She said some really crazy shit, um, but that also helped us to think. And um, some of us even learned from it. And if I were to be sort of called as an ancestor, I think there would be certain rituals that people would have to do because I never pee when I need to. So if you're trying to like get in touch with me as an ancestral like spirit, like you probably need to like kind of starve yourself for a day and not pee and like just have a very out of body experience. Probably get like a clove cigarette, an Indonesian clove cigarette or hand rolled tobacco with lavender and maybe a little weed and some brown liquor and called to me called to me in your greatest pee-pee dance and <laughs> I will respond. Thank you, Natasha. This has been enlightening and fun and funny. I love it. And I think this will be a great way to kick off the third season of Black and Published. So thank you so much. Congratulations. Thank you so much, doer of all the things. Big thank you to Natasha Marin for being here today on Black and Published. Make sure you check out Natasha's latest curated anthology, Black Powerful. It's out now, today, from McSweeney's. And if you're not following Natasha, hit her up on the socials. She's on Instagram at Tosh1KO. That's T-A-S-H, the number one, K, zero. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, head to our Instagram page. It's at Black and Published, and that's B-L-K and Published. There, I've posted a bonus clip from my interview with Natasha about the performance art pop-up she's held around the world, turning visitors into voyeurs. Make sure you check it out and let me know what you think in the comments. I'll holler at y'all next week when our guest will be Marita Golden, the co-founder of the Hurston Wright Foundation and author of the novel, a woman's place. We have a long tradition of many of the most important books that Black writers have written being published by small Black presses or being self-published. So I'm, I want to get away from this idea that the white publishing industry and its largesse has published always the most significant work that we've done. Until next time, peace. <laughs>